This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to New York Times bestselling author, Jill Santopolo. Jill is the internationally bestselling author of Everything After, More Than Words, and The Light We Lost, which was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick and has been optioned for a film. Her books have been translated into more than 35 languages and have been named to the New York Times, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, Apple, and IndieBound bestseller lists. Jill joins me today to talk about her career and latest novel, Stars in an Italian Sky. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Jill. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm happy to have you here, Jill. Uh, I have to ask uh, the question I ask everybody as we begin, which is, where does your story as an author begin? Um, I mean... I always loved writing stories. I always loved writing. And I, I joke all the time that first grade was a very prolific year for me. I wrote a lot of stories then and um, discovered that I wasn't a great artist. So I gave my stories to other friends in my class to illustrate for me because, you know, picture books. Um, but I think, you know, in reality, after after college, I got a job in publishing and I was an editorial assistant and we were, you know, working on all of these wonderful books. And I kept thinking, like, do I do I have a story that I want to tell too? And and you know, is it something that I could possibly do? And so on the side, I started writing. Um, I started writing a novel. I, I work in children's books, so I started writing some children's books and um and had a lot of fun in that world. And then um, some years later, I went through this horrible breakup and I was kind of using writing as a way to process that. And that couldn't be for kids. Um, so that was when I wrote the light we lost. And then that sort of launched my, my, uh, you know, adult fiction publishing edit, uh, author career. <laughs> um, so, so many careers going on. Um, so, so yeah, so I feel like, you know, my whole life I was preparing to be a writer and then there was sort of writer 1.0 and then writer 2.0 in the, in the adult novels. Going back to, uh, those poorly illustrated novels in first grade. Mm -hmm. Um, do you remember the titles of any of them? Um, you know, I don't fully remember the titles, but I do remember some of the plots. 
And one of them um, was about aliens who also were in first grade. Um, and they were very similar to my friends in first grade, um, except they were aliens living on a different planet. But they did all the same things we did. Um, I also, one of the stories I wrote was a sequel to Grease, the movie, because I had a babysitter who let me watch Grease and I loved it. Um, and I, but I thought Sandy really needed to like talk back to Danny. So I, I remember I wrote, I wrote basically Grease fan fiction when I was in first grade. Um, and then the very first book I wrote, I, I was, I was, it was before first grade, I was younger. Um, and it was called Stacy the cat. Hmm. And it was about a cat who turned into a mat anytime someone pet her. Well, that, that's an interesting choice for yeah. a cat. Mm -hmm. For a cat, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned a, a sequel to Grease. Did you ever see the movie Grease Two? Oh yes, I love it. It's one of those movies that I don't. When I was growing up, was always on. Well, I don't know if we had Showtime or HBO, but it was like playing in a loop. And that song, Cool Rider, every now and then gets stuck in my head. And, um, you know, it's it's not as bad as the reviews say. It's fantastic. I mean, I we watched Grease a lot, my sisters and I. And then I don't know if Grease 2 was out already and we just didn't know it until much later or if Grease 2 actually just came out after we started watching Grease. I, I've never actually looked into the, the timing of that. But yes, it was on our TV too at some point. And then we started watching Grease 2 and then kind of abandoned Grease because we thought Grease 2 was so much better. Well, you had a guy with a motorcycle, right? So right then and there, he was like your, yeah. your kind of loser guy who I remembered the scenes where he was trying to learn how to ride the motorcycle and he's always falling. And then he becomes the cool rider. And, yeah. um, you know, Adrian's med be damned. No, it was pretty amazing. It was an amazing movie. I, I wholeheartedly recommend it. Well, I want to go back to uh, what you said earlier, kind of your your first book, um, you know, kind of being fueled by this bad breakup. And, you know, it, it never ceases to amaze me where where something beautiful and wonderful can come out of a tragedy or a perceived tragedy at the time. Mm -hmm. What was it like kind of fueling your your energy into writing during that period of your life? No, it was, it was something that I felt I had to do to sort of um, almost like keep myself together because I felt like every, you know, it, it was one of those situations where like, you know, for weeks, every time I would talk to friends, I would like be in tears and I was like, all right, this has got to stop. Like, this has really got to stop. And I started writing this kind of, um, friend Lucy who was also going through a breakup and was sort of channeling like her her story is not my story the light we lost is not my story but the sort of emotions that she's feeling are kind of what I was going through at the time so that I was able to channel that into something productive instead of just like me crying on the subway um and I think you know because of that, the responses that I've gotten to the novel have been, you know, a lot of people who also had gone through terrible breakups were like, I really, you know, was able to connect to the story and it, it made me feel a lot less alone. And I think because I was creating this book so that I would feel less alone, it kind of ended up, you know, doing that for other people because, you know, losing love is, is 
a common human experience and feeling that grief um, from a lost relationship for whatever the reason is something that I think, you know, a lot of people have, have experienced in knowing, knowing that you're not the only person who has had this experience is kind of comforting in a way, I think. Yeah. It's one of those shared experiences that we, you know, we all kind of go through, but, you know, cause you're writing from that, from that pain, even though it's not, you know, you know, quote unquote, your story, uh, people respond to the authenticity of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, well, tell me kind of moving from, you know, writing, uh, you know, children's books to writing adult fiction. What, what was that transition like for you? You know, it wasn't as big of a difference as it seems like it should be in that the way I approach writing a novel is sort of getting into the character um, and, and sort of figuring out what the character would experience, how the character talks, how the character would react in different scenarios and different situations, and then writing the story kind of with, in that headspace. So the difference to me between writing from the perspective of a 35-year-old and writing from the perspective of a 10-year-old is just developing a different character who would have different reference points and different touchstones and a different vocabulary. Yeah. You know, um, so process-wise, it was very similar. I just got to use a lot more of the world when I was telling the story. Yeah. How, how do you get into character? How do you, how do you sort of embody a character when you're writing them? I really try and think of a lot of details about them and who they are. And as I write the beginning chapters, I'm like using those chapters to explore them and, and think like, okay, if this person has this job, how do they see the world? How does, how would they walk into this room and what would they talk about and who would they look at and who, what would they notice? You know, would, would they be looking for the architecture or the people's clothing or their hair or like what, what is their, their sort of um, actual perspective when they walk somewhere and, and talk somewhere and, and what choices would they make based on the past that I've given them and sort of figuring that out. Um, and then I would say after like a hundred pages or so of a draft, I kind of, I kind of know them a bit better. And then it makes the rest of the book a little bit easier to write because I can sort of understand them and understand their motivation and understand how they would act in different places without like thinking about it quite as much as I do at the beginning. Yeah. And I imagine the, um, the sort of the other side of that coin is after a hundred pages, you probably have to go back and, and fill in some blanks or hundred oh, percent or make some changes based on what you now know about, you know, yeah. this character or these characters. Right. For sure. For sure. And I do that. I do that often with the first hundred pages until I get them to a point where I feel like, right, I've seeded all the things that I need to seed to now move right. forward. So it sounds like the, the key to getting into character is having a tremendous sense of curiosity. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to clip that for the video promo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it seems like I, I often think that authors, you know, they're, I think about superpowers, right. And if authors were superheroes, what would their superpowers be? And of course, there's this ability to put words on a on a page. But really, um, you know, a lot of people can do that. But what I think sets authors apart is sort of an enhanced sense of empathy for other human beings and and this curiosity that fuels the way they look at the world, you know, mm -hmm. and just thinking about, okay, well, what would this person do 
given this person's backstory, given the situation you've put them in. Um, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of curiosity to to do that and have that be your fuel. That's really interesting. I like that a lot. I yeah, and I think um I think too it's it's the idea of of understanding that we don't all think the same way and we don't all react the same way and and that everybody is sort of past and previous experiences as well as their personality and you know a million other things kind of goes into the way we act and how we do what we do and sort of being able to look at all of those things and pull them together and then create a person from all of those details that then feels kind of rounded and, and fully formed and understandable. Cause you know, there, there are some people who say that they don't like some of my main characters and I'm cool with that. I don't like everybody I meet either. Um, but my goal is that they understand them. And that's always like my hope in real life that even if I don't agree with how someone acts or it's not how I would act, I always want to be able to understand where they're coming from yeah, and understand why they're doing what they're doing and, and sort of then what that informs how I react to them or respond to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of what I hope about my characters too, that whether people like them or, or not, they, they understand them and they understand why they're doing what they're doing. How did it feel when you were informed that the light we lost was chosen as a Reese Witherspoon book club pick? I was totally floored. I was totally in shock. Like I, 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 I like it didn't even really process entirely. Like it took a little bit of time before I was like, wait, that that's real. And that's going to be life changing. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful to Reese Witherspoon and I will be grateful to Reese Witherspoon for my entire life for, for making that choice. And I still have no idea why she, she chose my book, but I'm, I'm so glad she did. Well, clearly she saw something in it that she liked. Um, have you got to meet her and, and work with her yet? I haven't met her. Um, I haven't met her in person, but I would love to one day. <laughs> Well, what can you share with us about your latest novel, Stars in an Italian Sky? Um, so it's it's a dual um, time period novel. So one story takes place in Italy in 1946, just after World War II. And the other story takes place in New York City in 2017. And it's about um, the grandparent and grandchild generations of the same families. And there are two love stories and there are family secrets. And um, I was saying this morning, an author friend of mine who read my book said, so it's a book about making love and making wine. And I was like, yeah, that's basically it. It's a book about making love and making wine. <laughs> well, I mean, if you just put that on the cover, it, it would certainly get my interest. <laughs> uh, but what's it like writing dual timelines? Is Was this the first time you've attempted to write a dual timeline or? Ish. So in my, in my novel, Everything After, there is a dual timeline, but it's in the same person's life. So you get her diary and then you get, you know, from years ago and you get her reality from now and you, it goes back and forth so you can see how her past influences her present. So it is dual timeline, but in a different way, I think. This is the first book that I've written where it's two different character, you know, 
two different sets of characters, two different worlds, two different locations. And the timeline for one of them, you know, is so much earlier than the, the, the other, you know, not just a, a, you know, 10 or 15 years or whatever. Um, so, so I had a lot of fun. I mean, I had a lot of fun researching for the 1946 Italy piece. I mean, I read tons of books and I spoke to a ton of Italian professors who I, some of whom cousins connected me to and some of whom I randomly reached out to because I liked their YouTube videos and I had some more questions. Um, but I really wanted to get that time period right because it wasn't a time that I'd experienced and, you know, I wanted to make sure all the details were right. Um, and my amazing Italian publisher did a whole detail check for me and, and found all of these mistakes I made that I'm so grateful that she caught. Um, and then, but I, but I wanted them to go back and forth. You know, I, I could have written this novel where it was like part one is, is Italy in 46 and part two is New York in 17 and um, done it that way. But what I wanted to do was show how the past and the future are connected and show the way that what happens in the past really informs the future and then plant things in the future that then show up in the past. Um, so I wrote it that way, but then when I revised it, I actually pulled both timelines apart and I revised them as their own stories. And then I put them back together again. <laughs> so it took, yeah. I mean, that this was not a short process, I imagine. No, I think the entire book took me about two years to write. Wow. A little, like a month shy of two years. What inspired you to write about um, Italy in 46 and, 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 and have that as part of the setting? So um, my husband and I are both half Italian, my father's family and his mother's family. And we went over to Italy um, in 2019. And we went, it was our honeymoon. And we decided that we were going to spend a week of our honeymoon um visiting his cousins in Northern Italy. And one of his cousins is actually his mother's cousin. He's, he's a man in his eighties. And I, I think of him as the man who would have been count. So he would have been the count of Saluzzo and the Marquis of Rocca di Baldi if the um, Italian nobility hadn't been abolished with the monarchy in 1946. So we were spending time with him and with his sister. And she started telling us about the referendum, which I hadn't known pretty much anything about before she started talking to us about it. But as she was saying it, I was thinking, what, what must that have been like when, you know, this man who would have been count was probably around 10 years old and this life he thought he was going to have this, you know, sort of promised future was, was, you know, eradicated by popular vote, which also was the first time that women voted nationally in Italy. Um, so I thought that's so interesting. Like what a, what a time that must've been. And then I, you know, my family, my husband and I always joke about this, but my family in Italy was descended from shoemakers. So like what would have happened if he at that point was in a relationship, you know, probably, uh, you know, clandestine, sort of scandalous relationship with the daughter of, of a tailor, you know, and then they find themselves on two sides of this political question. And then how does that, you know, challenge who they are and their relationship with each other? And what does that mean for them? 
Um, so that's sort of where the idea for the story got got sort of born. Um, and also because when we were in Italy, I went to visit my Italian publisher who, while we were chatting, was like, you should write your, your next book in Italy. And I was like, I don't really know about that. But then I got this idea and I was like, nope, I'm going to write my next book set in part in Italy. Well, there, there's that curiosity that I was speaking about before, because anyone else may have heard that story, you know, about the, the referendum in 46 and and the, the cousin who, you know, would have been count and just maybe just let it go there. But but you let your mind chew on it for a bit. And it kind of yeah. fueled what became uh, what became stars in an Italian sky. So that's so cool. Yeah, it's. um, It was fun. It was fun to learn more about it to sort of. I, I I just always find it so interesting. And it's why I love reading historical fiction um, to kind of learn these bits of, of history that I didn't know about from school. And, you know, I always really enjoy, enjoy a novel when I find out something new about the world that was old. You know, yeah. it's like old information that I'm learning for the first time. And um, that's that's sort of what got me excited about researching this book. Yeah. And not fueled by a breakup. No, not at all. <laughs> Actually, quite by the opposite, right? Fact, right? Exactly. I was going to say, because you were on your honeymoon at, at the time. Right. So it's uh, you kind of, I don't want to say coming full circle, but it's just uh, interesting um, how, how those those two books were um, different uh, or fueled by something different. Um, well, I always like to get to know my guests a little bit more through, um, through pop culture. So I'm curious, Joe, when you were growing up, um, what were some of your favorite TV shows? When I was growing up. When you're growing up, yeah. Um, Full House, for sure. I have two sisters, so we were very into Full House. Um, also, Blossom. I loved Blossom. I loved her hats. I, I bought a bunch of those hats or asked my mom to buy me those hats with big flower in the center. Um, we were very into the Disney afternoon cartoons. So it was Chippendale Rescue Rangers. I think um, the one with Scrooge McDuck where oh ducktails ducktails yes thank you ducktails um and and before that i was recently talking to a friend about an, an early childhood favorite book a uh, tv show which was zoobly zoo um which had starred like ben vereen which was kind of amazing oh wow and they were all these like people but dressed up as animals so I think he was maybe a lion or something. There was someone who was like a cockatoo and they sang and they lived in Zoobly Zoo. I don't know. I loved it. It was weird, but I loved it. I mean, certainly um, an interesting later in life career choice for Ben Vereen. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what about now? What do you, what do you enjoy watching now? If anything? I'm, I'm pretty bad at television, to be honest. Um, during the pandemic, I had discovered that my husband had never seen Star Trek, any form of it. So literally when there was nothing else to do and we were locked down and I also was pregnant at that point in time, we watched every single episode of any version of Star Trek that had ever been created, including movies. Um, it was, we calculated it. I, I can't even tell you how many hours we spent watching Star Trek. But that's the crazy kind of thing we do with like pop culture now is we'll, we'll make a commitment to like 
watch binge watch a ton of something so um our recent one which we're almost done with now um because i had chosen star star trek my husband chose ncis which neither of us had ever watched so we started at the very beginning and now we're actually finishing up i think season 19 so going back to star trek did you have a favorite incarnation of any of the star treks yes i mean so the reason that I knew Star Trek was my dad was a huge Star Trek fan. So I watched Next Generation with him when I was a kid. And I, I was very into, um, I was very into that one. But my personal favorite is, um, is it called, now I'm, now I'm going to mess up the title of this one. Is it? Voyager that has Captain Voyager. Janeway. Yes, yes. Voyager. Captain Janeway. Kate, was that Kate Kate Mulgrew? Was she? Yes, Kate Mulgrew. She was Captain yeah. Janeway. And I don't know if it's just because it's the one with the girl captain, the female captain, the woman mm. captain. Um, but but that one I really like. And I also like how they're just so far away from everywhere. And they're they're kind of living in this like in this space where they know for at least for a while in the show they accept that like they don't know if they're gonna be able to get home ever yeah and and that's really an int- that was really interesting to me i just uh started watching picard um mm-hmm. which i you know i was a big next generation fan um and i kind of kind of outgrew the whole star trek thing um then I was looking for something to watch the other night. I've got Paramount and I'm like, eh, this could be interesting. And I was like roped in from the first episode. I'm like, wow, this is actually really good. Like you forget how good of an actor like Patrick Stewart is. He's you know? really good. We watched the first season of Picard, but hmm. then it was on hiatus while we were doing NCIS. But now it's back for a second season. And when we finish NCIS, that's our next. We have to go back and, and, and do that one. Yeah. And I think they bring back some of the... Um like most of the people from the next generation in season two or season three. I don't, I don't remember. I think there could be a third season now. Oh, is it? Um, did we watch, then we watched the first two. We watched however much there was yeah. and then there was a break. Um, but yeah, they brought back my personal favorite from next generation, um, Deanna Troy. Oh, she was my favorite too. She was I awesome. mean, counselor Troy, what a, what a great character she was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So very... I was very excited when they brought her back. <laughs> well, now that I've exposed uh, my nerdiness, and that um, would expose mine. <laughs> How about music? What did you like listening to when you're growing up? Growing up, um, I was into like Debbie Gibson and Tiffany. I had their records on my little Fisher Price record player. Um, also, um, my I had a pocket rocker. I don't know if you if you remember those, but they were like these tiny tiny little tapes. And I had one. They each it was like one song on either side. And I had Walk Like an Egyptian on one side and Manic Monday on the other side. Oh. And I was very, very into that pocket rocker tape. Um, two, two great Bangles hits right there. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that, was, that was great. Um, and then I feel like as I got older, I, I kind of got into like a little more classic Rocky-ish. Um, I listened to a lot of Meatloaf. Beatles stuff. Um, as you can tell, I'm not very cool. 
No, I like no, it I, I think it, I think it's all cool. cool person. But I'll make I'll make um, a connection because um, was it Debbie Gibson or Tiffany? I can't remember. Did a cover of a Beatles song. I saw you standing there. That's right. Yes, there there's an overlap right. there. There's a through line to yeah. your musical tastes. There is a through line. There <laughs> is a through line. Yeah, Meatloaf was great. He lived in my town. Um, here I'm in, I'm in Connecticut. He lived in Stamford, Connecticut, had a house here, raised his family here. Um, so meatloaf was a, he was a fixture on the scene. We'd see him in the mall. Like I'm telling, I'm talking like in the mid eighties, we'd see him walking through the mall, the meat man. Um, That's fantastic. That is fantastic. I also, I grew up on Long Island, so I was always a big fan of Billy Joel. I played piano as a kid. I played piano man. Um, I saw him this past summer at Madison square garden. And, um, I mean, it was such an experience. I, I literally broke down crying five times during that show. Just just amazed that I was there. He's um, amazing. He's, he's amazing. Such, such a good performer, storyteller. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, looks great. I mean, just... And the, his songwriting, I just think... I mean, he, he writes stories. His songs yeah. are stories. Yeah. And yeah. I always really admired that about him. And, and even more so now. Um, and then... Yeah. I was going to say after after September 11th, I listened to Bruce Springsteen's "Rising" on like oh repeat. That was an amazing album. That song gives me chills every time I hear. Just knowing what it's about, yeah, um, just gives me such chills whenever I hear it. Uh, such a great, such a great tune. Um, this one will likely be a softball for you, given um, the story behind your first novel. Uh, but in what ways has writing been therapeutic for you? I mean, I think it actually keeps me together. Like, I, I think it, it, it's how I process the world and I, it's how I process experiences. And I think that um, being able to channel what's happening into fiction and then sort of take a step back from it has, has really been like a mental health thing for me. Um, and even being able to write stars in Italian sky during the pandemic and being able to escape there, but also the idea, um, you know, of looking at the parallel of post-World War II Italy and post-pandemic earth um, and sort of seeing how, like, like writing about that time was almost a way of reassuring myself that like, the world has seen disaster. The world has seen cataclysmic events before. And we end, we come out on the other side changed. The world has changed, but human by human, we can be okay. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think in writing Stars in Italian Sky, it was both an escape and a reassurance for me. Yeah. And then going back, uh, going back in time a bit, if you were able to write a letter to the younger Jill, you know, maybe it's the Jill who wrote about the cat who squishes itself into a mat, whatever it's pet. Um, <laughs> what what kind of words of advice would you give your younger self if you could offer your younger self some words of advice? Um, you know, I was just I was just in another podcast where someone had asked me that question, and what I had said was that. I always thought writing was so much fun. Like when I was a kid, I just loved writing stories. I just thought it was, thought it was like a really enjoyable thing to do. And when I started selling my books and, and started thinking about, you know, 
the, the pressure of, and, and the response and the reaction, all of that, I was worried. Um, I was worried that it wouldn't be fun anymore, that the actual process of creation would, wouldn't be fun. And while there are definitely, you know, things to think about and, and anxiety surrounding other aspects of book publishing, for me, the writing is still fun. It's hard sometimes. Um, and it's frustrating sometimes, but in the end, it's always fun. And I think I would, I would reassure myself that like, if you want to pursue this, you won't lose the joy you are finding in writing right now. Yeah. I think some people do realize that when writing is the fun part, but when it comes time to selling and promoting, that's when it kind of feels like work. And, you know, if, if you're doing it to, to make a living, you know, will that take away the joy? Uh, from it but um, it sounds like no it, it won't necessarily take away the joy yeah not I mean at least not for me at least not right now who knows right. and talk to me in 10 years we'll see if it's different <laughs> that's right after you have um, you know more bestsellers under your belt uh, <laughs> well uh, the book is uh, stars in an Italian sky um, I imagine it'll be available wherever books are sold um, Jill if people want to get in touch with you or follow you on social media do you have any recommendations of where they should look Yes, um, I am on, I have a website, jillsantapolo.com. And if you go there, you can go to the events page and find out where I'm going to be on tour for Stars in Italian Sky. And then I hang out a lot on Instagram. Um, I post a bunch. I really like Instagram. I, I sometimes cross post with Facebook. So I'm there too. I, I have, I'm parked on Twitter, but I never, ever, ever use it. So you can find me there, but you won't find anything new there and have you ventured into tiktok yet okay so i'm gonna confess something which is that i have a fake name on tiktok because i wanted to figure out how tiktok worked and i wanted to go on as not me so there's a fake me on tiktok with no picture or anything but i mostly just use it to watch tiktoks i haven't created a tiktok because I'm really intimidated by it. <laughs> I don't blame you. I haven't figured that one out either. Um, but Jill, this has been a fun conversation. Thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.